or I was helping out a, a fellow veteran who was treating some of their wartime wounds, you know, visible and invisible, uh, with opioids and a whole cocktail of other drugs. And this person said, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the way they make me feel. I'm going to try this medical marijuana thing, which was a real surprise to me. Uh, and so I started looking into it with this, with this friend of mine just to see what it was about, learn more about it, and advise them. Uh, and it turns out that we found that there is a real lack of clinical medical research when it comes to cannabis. Like if there's a lot of the stuff that people talk about medical marijuana, oh, it's good for anxiety. Oh, it's good for PTSD. Oh, it's good for pain. Most of that is observational and anecdotal evidence and does not withstand like rigorous scientific review. We know more about like a Coca-Cola or an aspirin than we do about, about marijuana. And people aren't, you know, calling Coca-Cola a medicine, right? Like it's, there's a real lack of scientific research. And so that's why I decided to start the company. Welcome to the Darwin Force podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned exponential performance coach and endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is George Hodgen. George is currently the founder and CEO of Biopharmaceutical Research Company, or BRC. BRC was founded to address the needs of America's scientific community for diverse types of research quality and federally compliant cannabis and to provide USDA compliant hemp testing. Cannabis is still illegal under federal law, meaning organizations like universities, biotech, and pharma companies can't conduct research or clinical trials on the potential medical benefits and detriments of cannabis like they can with other drugs. BRC is working to solve this issue. Prior to founding BRC while getting his MBA at Stanford, George served as a Navy SEAL officer for a little over six years, where he was responsible for, among other duties, leading a team of 24 Navy SEALs conducting counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations across five countries in Asia and the Middle East. In this interview, we get into where he grew up and the inspiration for joining the military, his decision to want to become a SEAL and preparation for SEAL training, what it was like to adjust to life outside the teams, and finally his company BRC. And so, without further ado, my interview with George Hodgen. How's everything going, man? Where where are you located now? Um, I am in, so I live in uh, Carmel, California. You know, we're like two hours south of San Francisco. Um, okay. My office is in Castroville, which is in between Monterey and Santa Cruz. So on the coast, um, things are crazy. Uh, I mean, I feel really lucky and happy to be my family, colleagues, everybody is safe and sound, um, but definitely uncertain about the future of the economy, which is kind of scary at being a entrepreneur and uh, startup CEO, um, but we'll get through it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm sure. And we'll definitely get, get into that more later. Um, I guess first, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show, George. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, so, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and then went to Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, but grew up uh, in Charlotte. Mom was a school teacher, one younger sister, 
who also went to Chapel Hill. My dad worked uh, at a bank uh, his entire career. Got it. Okay. And so were you born into a military family? Um, like were your parents always supportive of you joining the military? They were, they were, yes, they were always supportive. My, <laughs> excuse me, my dad was in the army. Um, he was in the 82nd airborne division, but it was, he got out of the army, you know, before I was born. So it wasn't like a material part of my upbringing. Um, he, he did it for four or five years after college. So it was sort of on the periphery. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think military service was kind of always in the background of what I wanted to do with, with my life. Um, but it wasn't like it was front and center for me always, but yeah, they were absolutely, absolutely supportive, uh, of me and, you know, both my grandparents, I think like most people, my age, our age, uh, both grandparents fought in world war two. Um, so I remember sort of hearing stories about the military, but, uh, it was always, um, pretty distant. Got it. So it wasn't like you had parents who were in active duty while, while you were growing up. Um, Correct. Right. Right. Got it. If someone were to, I guess, glance at your life resume as it stands now, I think many would note the mission or purpose driven approach you've taken to various jobs throughout your career. Were you always someone who wanted to find ways to give back or serve others through some sort of profession? I think so. But, um, that, would make, I, I think my paths, <clears throat> excuse me, my path so far through life, if you look back, it looks linear or like it had a very intentional trajectory and undercurrent. But in the moment, it certainly doesn't feel that way. Like it feels up and down and scattered just like anybody else. Um, but I think either intentionally or just in retrospect, um, doing hard things to serve others has has been one uh, unifying theme for sure. But it wasn't like I said, you know, I woke up one day and said like, I'm going to try and do hard things that make the world a better place. Um, I've just found that for whatever reason, I find fulfillment out of tackling hard problems that do seem to, to make the try that I try and make the world a better place uh, through tackling. Um, So, yeah. Interesting. And you mentioned doing hard things a few times there. One of the things that Navy SEALs are, you know, really known for is a kind of never quit mentality. At at what point in your life, maybe maybe pre SEAL training, do you think that you really started to adopt and apply this mentality to almost enjoying hard things and kind of that never quit mentality? I don't remember a specific instance, but I do know that my parents really encouraged me to play team sports growing up. Uh, you know, like most guys or girls, um, you know, I enjoyed team sports. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I think I was lucky to have coaches and mentors and really active parents in my life that uh, just would never let me uh, back, never let me uh, not fulfill a team obligation. So it probably just became more part of my like rhythm and monotony than a single instance. But I know, you know, I, I can remember, several times when I was, if it was middle school or elementary school or whatever. Um, and thinking, Oh, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go to this practice because it's early on a Saturday morning, or I don't want to travel to go to this game. Uh, and I, I think in, in every opportunity to remind me or force me to recognize that a team is more important than oneself. My parents 
took it. And so I think uh, that like that, that mentality of always putting a team above your own self and, and not quitting on your team was, was definitely instilled in me uh, by parents, probably through sports. Interesting. Okay. The mentality came the way like into your being, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. And which, which sports did you mainly play growing up? Oh man. Well, I was not, I was not a great athlete, but I like, <laughs> I tried really hard. I was like always the guy doing sprints or shooting free throws at lunch or whatever, but like not a gifted athlete by any means. Um, but I played, uh, primarily lacrosse and football were the ones I really, really liked. Okay. Got it. And I guess skipping ahead here a bit, uh, why did you decide to go to college before, uh, attending SEAL training? Walk me, walk me through that thought process. Yeah, I um, knew I'd wanted to be a SEAL for probably since I was in like seventh grade, since I was young. Wow. And had made the decision or commitment that I wanted to be a SEAL officer, uh, probably for much less sexy reasons than uh, than someone would imagine. But it was basically just kind of a calculus like a calculated decision, like, look, if I, you know, I'm not planning on quitting at Bud's, but if I were to get injured, uh, and if I were to get injured at Bud's as an officer, I feel like I could still have an impact in the Navy, have a good job, uh, have job satisfaction, uh, and get some really good training. I think that path becomes less clear if you go the enlisted route to being a SEAL. I'm not in any way putting that route down, but I think if you if you go into the Navy, get injured at BUDS uh, or quit at BUDS and get sent to the fleet, oftentimes you are you don't have a training specialty, so you don't have like a, a, uh, a job functionality that you've been trained in. So your quality of life and your job satisfaction is really out of your control, um, more so than, than if you were an officer. Because if you're an officer, then you'd say, look, I want to go drive ships or be on a submarine or try and be a pilot or an intelligence officer. And you can find real meaning out of those. Um, so a lot of enlisted people find great meaning out of their jobs uh, if they leave buds because they get great jobs, but it's, it's just less in your control. And there is a small chance that you end up what's called undesignated, which means like untrained. Uh, and you're kind of just a warm body that swabs the deck or, or chips paint. And that was a real, uh, I did not want to do that. So I was like, all right, um, how can I de-risk my job satisfaction in the Navy and learn and focus on leadership and management? That was always one of the things that I wanted to uh, really get out of being a SEAL was leading other SEALs. Uh, and there's a direct path to doing that as an officer. In order to be an officer, you got to go to college. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, when I was exploring going the Navy SEAL route, that was one of the things that um, one of the points that a lot of the people I've talked to, former SEALs, brought up a lot was that was around if you go enlisted and you quit buds, uh, you know, and, and ring the bell. You know, some of them were like, "You're going to be put on this floating target and basically be the person who might be, you know, scrubbing the floors," like you said. So uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and then the other, I mean, the other piece of it, there's there is a risk reward though, right? Like if you if you enlist and you make it to SEAL training, uh, 
you are definitely the one doing the um, the most the the jobs that you imagine most often when you think about being a seal. So yeah. being the sniper, the breacher, doing demolitions, um, you are the functional expert at your job. And so I'd say like the enlisted guys that make it through, they're rewarded by having uh, really, really fun and impactful jobs. Not to say that officers don't, but there's definitely the stigma part of it rooted in truth that officers are more focused on like managing leading administration and the enlisted guys are the ones doing the fun stuff, the sniping, uh, being a medic, et cetera. And it's a little bit of a generalization, but, but yeah, yeah, by and large true. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. Um, I, I was exploring other branches of the military too. Uh, and talking to a couple former enlisted Navy SEALs, like it surprised me like how much they were talking about, how much fun they had in their job. It was just like, Oh man, I would do it all over again. It was just an absolute blast. I was like, huh, I would never think of someone you know, talking about their career in the military as being as much fun as they said it was. It was super <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you've got to, there's a lot of it that's not fun. And so I think sure. you have to, you have to maintain a sense of humor and have fun with it um, and find ways to have fun with it because there's monotony, there's danger, uh, you know, you're away from your family and there's certainly like grief and hardship. So the folks that do it well are able to make fun out of any, uh, otherwise impossible situation. Yeah. Right. And so since seventh grade, you've wanted to, to be a Navy SEAL, I guess what, what sparked your interest, um, that, that early? I, wanted i decided that i wanted to serve in the military and again i don't really know if it was because like it was on the fa on the periphery in my family or if i just latched on to it one day but uh, I, I i was positive i wanted to serve in the military in some way and i did some homework and realized all right if i'm going to do this i want to do it in the most impactful uh intense way possible and so i made the decision that being a seal would would do that um or would be that route. Fast forward to 2001, September 11th happens, um, and I was even more motivated uh, and inspired to, one, join the military uh, as soon as I could, and two, it became, it became much more about the impact I thought I could have. Like if I was gonna, if September 11th was a driving force for me, which it was, then why not be on the front lines in the war on terror and be, have, you know, as a young, young military officer, 22, 23 years old, be leading counterterrorism missions. Uh, and I thought like there's, that's the way to do it. Right. Yeah. And so you end up going to UNC, uh, Chapel Hill, like you mentioned, um, while at UNC, did you form any idea of what you might be interested in doing after you serve or did you just kind of see it as like through ROTC just to be able to become an officer, get into Navy SEAL training and that was kind of your focus? The latter. Uh, yeah, I, I did not, I did not know if I wanted to make the military a, a full-time career and do it for 20 plus years. I didn't think I did, but I wasn't sure. And I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do after the Navy, if that was going to be the route I chose. I think I, it, it was all consuming enough to get ready for buds. So I just focused on 
you know, I focused on buds. And then after I made it through that, I focused on the next phase of training. And then all of a sudden you're at an actual SEAL team. Uh, and buds is kind of a distant, a, a not so distant memory. But then you're focused on preparing for deployment and then deploying, getting every, all your teammates home. And then you just sort of rinse, lather, repeat. So I didn't, uh, certainly not in college. And even my first few years in the Navy, I wasn't even thinking about next steps. It was more just focus on the next on the next mission or the next training trip. Right. Right. And I saw that you ended you ended up studying Mandarin while you're at UNC. Is that right? I, I did. Yes. I was an economics and Mandarin, uh, double major. So what's part, why did you decide to study Mandarin? Was it like, did you want to increase your chance of potentially getting deployed to Asia? Was that part of it or is it something else? <laughs> um, it's funny you say that because, uh, that would make sense prior to joining the Navy, that level of intentionality, uh, would make sense. But looking back like there, the Navy did not, or would not care, uh, about the language you speak. (laughs) They'd be like, wow, that's great. You speak Chinese. We'll send you to South America. Um, okay. (laughs) Like for no fault of their own. It's just the system. The system is so large and the bureaucracy so complex that, uh, making individual deployment decisions based on someone's language, someone's language capabilities seems like a great idea and should be. I'm sure people, there's some directive somewhere that says people should be doing that, but by and large, it just, it's a bridge too far. Uh, but I, I decided to study Mandarin. Uh, you know, this was the early to mid two thousands. And so China was really coming online and China's importance as a global superpower or aspiring global superpower was becoming more prevalent by the day, both from like an economic standpoint, a geopolitical standpoint. Uh, and so as I, I just started to read a lot about China, you know, like anybody did that would pick up the paper uh, and realized that unlike countries in the West or cultures in the West, um, to really have an understanding of China and the Chinese people, you really have to speak the language because it's just so different from a romance language or a Western culture. Like you can have a pretty good sense of, you know, Brazilian or French or Irish culture or whatever. um, If you don't live there or you've never traveled there just through reading and language, but for China, it is really different. And all of those differences are, I think are rooted in their language. So I decided I wanted to study it. I also thought it would just be really useful from a, a business standpoint at some point in the future. Um, and so I was lucky enough to study it. Really enjoyed it. It was really hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it afforded some cool opportunities. I got to go to, I studied abroad in Beijing for a semester right before the Olympics, which was just incredible to see the entire transformation. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you still. I guess study it or maybe speak a little bit to speak a little bit of it today. I wish. No, it is like, man, talk about a perishable skill. Uh, <laughs> it really, really went away when I stopped using it. I tried for years to keep using it. You know, I would go to Chinese restaurants and try and speak Chinese and practice my Chinese um, with servers or watch, you know, YouTube videos. And eventually it just, I didn't prioritize it anymore. And, like I can, I, I could speak to somebody and ask for directions, but that's about it, which is a yeah. real shame because I put so much time and effort into it, but mm-hmm. with a startup and a baby, uh, something's got to give. Got to have your priorities straight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
And how many kids in Naval ROTC at UNC were you say, or would you say were set on becoming SEALs like you were? Uh, none. Uh, oh, wow. So it's a, yeah, I, there was nobody in my ROTC class, so, you know, the other seniors with me or juniors were, and then nobody in my unit, the entire ROTC program. Uh, nobody while I was there was really interested in becoming a SEAL. Like a couple of people would talk about it uh, and say, hey, you know, I might want to give that a go. But uh, it takes really intense focus, not just to become a SEAL, but to get a slot at BUDS um, to be invited to SEAL training. If you're an officer, it takes years of mm-hmm preparation and networking and writing essay. I mean, it's like, it's similar to a college application and like the, the, the breadth of things they look at, obviously different focus, but, um, but you've got to put together all sorts of application packets. So nobody was really serious about going through the the process with me. Um, I think of my year, there were 16 guys that were selected for buds from all the ROTC programs across the country and roughly 16, maybe 20 uh, guys from the Naval Academy, officers from the Naval Academy that uh, started buds in our year. So, man, I don't know if there's four or 5,000 college students a year that do Navy ROTC. Like I'm just guessing that, but of those call it 16 to 30, we'll, we'll go to buds a year. Wow. Okay. So did you, I guess, how are you preparing at UNC, uh, I guess, for like the PST? Like, did you have like a set like training schedule that you followed in order to train for it? I did. I don't really remember what it was or the exact training schedule, but I know that I, I swam every, like every day I worked out probably once or twice a day, uh, you know, a morning run or a morning swim, either in the pool doing stroke work or going out to, there's a couple lakes around Chapel Hill and I'll just go out to the lakes with some fins and goggles and, and practice open water swimming. So run and swim every day. And then I went back and forth between doing like, I'm guessing two to three days of body weight calisthenics a week. Mm -hmm. And then two to three days of lifting, like something like CrossFit. Um, I actually remember, a very, very good friend of mine who became a Marine infantry officer, 2006, probably we were working out. We would always work out together. Uh, and he was like, Hey, there's this new thing called CrossFit. Have you ever heard of it? Or should we give it a go? And we got really religious about it and did it for probably a year, year and a half, like almost every day we were doing it and we were in great shape, but we, you know, we were in college, so our bodies could take it. Now I think I would, I couldn't do that anymore. That's for sure. Yeah, it definitely takes a toll on the body. All those explosive and movements, uh, for sure. Yeah, and like I'm mid thirties, sit at a desk all day. Like go hike a couple times a week and run every, every so often. I don't need to be trying to clean and jerk three hundred pounds. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so what happens after you graduate UNC? Do you go straight to Navy boot camp or are you going straight to BUDS? Um, so if you go to an, if, if you're going to go the officer route, which I did because I'd been through ROTC, ROTC is like considered the boot camp, so to speak. So you just go okay. straight. Yeah. You go straight from ROTC to whatever your service selection is. So flight school, you know, submarine school, whatever. For me, I went straight to BUDS. 
Got it. And you get instructed or maybe like handled a little differently in buds when you go the officer route, right? You do. Yeah. You're so there's a couple things that are like materially different and then objectively different. And then a couple that are just more atmospheric and attitudinal. Uh, the first is officers. You only get one shot at buds. So if you're an enlisted person, you can quit two times. You go back to the fleet for a year or two, you know, go serve on a ship or whatever. And then you're, you can come back and, and try and become a seal for officers. It's one and done. So, uh, you, you only get one shot. Um, there's several other sort of objective uh, metrics. You know, you get leadership evaluations as an officer. If you're not, if you're not performing as a leader in the class, um, then you're uh, removed from training. If, and simultaneously, there is uh, an academic program at Buds. Nobody really thinks about it because it's kind of an afterthought. Everyone's focused on the physical and the mental. But there is an academic program. A lot of diving math, demolitions math calculations um and often i forget what the numbers are if like if if enlisted people have to get a 70 average or above on all the written examinations and officers i think have to get 80 and above so there's sort of those objective differences more more important though is the just the way officers are treated differently i mean you're expected to lead from the front physically mentally inspire your classmates uh, you're held accountable not just for your own actions, but for the actions of your boat crew and your teammates. Um, and what's really happening is that's the way life is in the SEAL team. So they've got to make sure, look, it's great. You're a, a good runner and a fast swimmer, but at the end of the day, can you manage under stress? And so they're trying to figure out those leaders. And I think what's really unique about SEAL training and what attracted me to it is that the it's, it's run... 95% by enlisted SEALs. And so there's not a separate track for officers and enlisted like most other programs. Like officers and enlisted go through the same training uh, and it's put on by enlisted guys. And so the enlisted guys are really, they're picking their leaders. They're picking the officers that they're going to go to war with, you know, a year from then or two years from then. So they want to make sure that you are really good and a cut above the rest. So that's why they, they focus on you a little more. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And so if you get like medically, I don't know, dropped as an officer from SEAL training, is, is that it for you too? Um, you know, well, there's, there, there's a couple different, there's like medical roles. So, and every situation is unique. So don't like take this as gospel, but Mm -hmm. let's say there's a great guy and he's performing really well. Uh, his class likes him. The instructors like him because he's just a stud and he tears his ACL. Um, th- they can roll you and recycle, recycle you. Like they'll keep you there assigned to buds and you're in like the physical therapy, physical rehab department for six months, nine months, whatever. And then they'll put you back into training. So in that scenario, like, yeah, you went through buds maybe a time and a half or with two different classes, but that sort of counts as one shot. Um, what they don't want is that you quit or are removed for performance reasons and right. you, you can't come back if that happens. Like the medical situation I think is probably unique. So it would depend on, it would depend on the, on the situation. I'm sure. Right. Got it. Okay. And skipping ahead here a bit, how has your experience as a SEAL changers perspective on life post service? Uh, I think it has, 
it's made me appreciate being in one place longer. It's made me appreciate the, uh, stability of a normal job with a normal home life where I'm not gone all the time. And it's made me certainly appreciate, um, just not being, not being in a dangerous place all the time. So I think I probably, for me, I have a profound sense of gratitude and, uh, just appreciation for sort of daily life. Uh, and I don't find it monotonous in any way. And so I think it, it's given me an ability to appreciate what we have really intensely. Uh, the flip side of that is I think it has made me, you know, there's never a day in the Navy. My worst day as a SEAL, if it was dangerous or monotonous or boring or exhausting, whatever superlative you want to throw in there, um, what, what it was never was lacking purpose. And so I always felt very fulfilled as a SEAL uh, because I was always surrounded by um, other SEALs who are really mission-focused, really intense, very driven and successful people that I was just lucky enough to be in their midst. And so what life on the other side of the SEAL teams has meant is that it takes some getting used to to not be surrounded by a tribe of really like-minded people all the time. I mean, you you know, you eat, sleep, work out with these guys, you're in very close proximity. So it, it almost, it's a family. So it's been a, it's been tough to adjust to not being around, uh, that tight knit family so intensely. Yeah. And that's gonna, that was going to lead into my next question. Was it, um, in terms of transitioning back into, I guess, civilian life, did you find it to be, uh, what's the right word here? Um, I don't know, I guess negative for lack of a better term to kind of bring that seal mentality to aspects of real life, such as like relationships or other aspects that probably won't be ideal to use that kind of really hard charging uh, seal mentality, if that makes sense. Yeah, the question makes sense. Uh, I would say if (laughs) um, I haven't, stopped my focus uh and i haven't like adopted a lack of intensity whether or not that's good or bad i i don't know i think the jury's probably still out uh (laughs) but i'd say like i'm gonna bring that level of focus that i learned as a seal i'm gonna bring that level of focus and intensity and dedication to anything i do if it's like selling socks or running my company today or you know being a janitor like it doesn't matter i'm gonna be focused and intense about everything. If that is off putting to people, so be it. Uh, but I definitely haven't, um, I, I haven't, uh, let that go by the wayside. I'd say what has, what has been the challenge to me is finding something that has me f- feeling fulfilled. Like I can only, yeah. I think for whatever reason, I'm just only going to be successful or dedicated or happy if I find fulfillment in my daily work. And so, um, that allows me to bring the intensity and focus and enjoyment. And so luckily with, with BRC, with what I'm doing now, uh, I have that deep sense of fulfillment, uh, so I can bring the intensity to work. Got it. Okay. And then was it at Stanford when you were getting your MBA that you got the inspiration to start BRC? It was. So I started around, uh, Christmas time of my second year. So, you know, MBA is a two year program. So I was, um, a little over halfway through when I started and I was taking care of or I was helping out a, a fellow veteran 
who was treating some of their wartime wounds, you know, visible and invisible, uh, with opioids and a whole cocktail of other drugs. And this person said, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the way they make me feel. I'm going to try this medical marijuana thing, which was a real surprise to me. Uh, and so I started looking into it with this, with this friend of mine just to see what it was about and learn more about it and advise them. Uh, and it turns out that we found that there is a real lack of clinical medical research when it comes to cannabis. Like if there's a lot of the stuff that people talk about medical marijuana, oh, it's good for anxiety. Oh, it's good for PTSD. Oh, it's good for pain. Most of that is observational and anecdotal evidence and does not withstand like rigorous scientific review. We know more about like a Coca-Cola or an aspirin than we do about, about marijuana. And people aren't, you know, calling Coca-Cola a medicine, right? Like it's, there's a real lack of scientific research. And so that's why I decided to start the company. Got it. Okay. And then maybe for the people listening, just provide a quick overview of, of BRC. Yeah. So BRC, uh, stands for biopharmaceutical research company. And our goal is to be the first private organization in the United States to produce legal cannabis, uh, for, medical, scientific, and drug development research. And so right now, at any given point in the United States, 200 million Americans live in a state where they can access cannabis legally at the state level, but not at the federal level, unless they're a scientist or a doctor. So a consumer can violate federal law, as people may know or may not know. Uh, any sort of cannabis activity, marijuana activity is illegal federally in the U.S., even if it's legal in your state. So like if you go to a dispensary in Colorado, it's not like the FBI is going to bust down your door, but you're breaking federal <laughs> law and doing that. Um, you can do that as an individual consumer, no problem. But if you're a doctor or a university or a biotech company, you can't violate federal law. Uh, and so all of these organizations that are traditionally involved in research and drug development are completely locked out of the marijuana market because they're not going to violate the law. So they're sort of all watching on the sidelines as consumers use cannabis at a really increasing rate. Uh, and so they're one, all these organizations are saying we really need a source of legal, federally legal marijuana that we can access to study. And so that's what our focus is, is to produce the cannabis legally uh, under D permits from the USDEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, and sell it to organizations looking to conduct uh, drug-focused research. Got it. So how do you make money? We make money by growing cannabis uh, and selling it to those organizations for more than it costs to grow it. Universities, biotech companies, pharmaceutical right. companies. Right, okay. That's what I was going to follow up with. Got it. Okay. And... Uh, so are you a cannabis consumer? I am not. Uh, I have nothing against it and would love to try it someday. Uh, but the fact is our organization operates like any pharmaceutical manufacturer, which means that all of our employees have to follow federal, the Controlled Substance Act, which is the federal drug regime or the federal drug framework, which does not allow for the consumption of cannabis. Unless prescribed by a doctor. There are mm -hmm. a very, very, very few amount of legitimate cannabis-derived drugs that are on the market, and those can be prescribed by a, a doctor, and that would be 
no problem. Like you could do that and work at our company, no issues. But like going to a dispensary to buy, you know, an edible or a medical marijuana vape or something like that, like we just can't do it. I see. Okay. And um, reading on your website, it says that you're an applicant with a DEA to manufacture clean, consistent, and compliant can- cannabis for federally appear- approved researchers across the U.S. So you currently aren't manufacturing cannabis? Right. So, w- yeah. So what we're doing now is we are doing a bunch of research uh, with products that we've acquired legally. Uh like pharmaceutical research and analysis on, on cannabis products that have been acquired through the national drug, like the, the national drug supply. So we've imported a bunch of cannabis products. So we recently imported the first ever legal cannabis from the European Union and then from Latin America as well. Uh, and then we can get it through the national drug supply program, which is administered by the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, our ultimate goal is very quickly very, very soon, hopefully in the next like month or two, to be manufacturing our own products. But until the federal government issues us uh, a really specialized permit to do that, we can't do it. And is the current pandemic situation affecting that at all, that timeline? Um, I know that it is, but how it is, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and I, what I mean by that is, you know, the government is, op- <coughs> excuse me, the government is operating uh, similarly to industry, which is remote work, social distancing. So everything just moves far slower. Mm -hmm. Um, but we haven't received like an objective timeline from the government that says, Hey, coronavirus is happening. Everything's delayed by six weeks nothing that clear cut. But we know that, uh, as federal government employees are practicing their own work from home, uh, everything just sort of slows down. So yeah, it's, it's slowing down. Okay. How are, how have you been funding, uh, I guess, this venture so far? Have you taken on outside capital? or We have. Okay. Yeah, so we raised from angel investors and high net worth individuals. We raised um, around $5 million uh, two years ago to hire our team, proof of concept, hire the team, build out our the, this really specialty-focused uh, facility, and go through a lot of, of other permitting processes. Um, so we're we're very soon going to start a fundraise to kick off the next phase of growth, which will allow us uh, to meet meet a bunch of objectives and effectively provide the cannabis that I described that we will soon manufacture uh, for clinical trials, for, for pharmaceutical clinical trials. Okay. Got it. Um, do you know how much you're looking to raise? Um, we are still going back and forth with the board on exactly what the right number is, but it'll be probably more than a million and less than 5 million. Got it. Okay. And what are currently the biggest roadblocks that are halting your company's progress towards its vision right now? Um, regulatory focused for sure. The federal government does not move quickly at all, and it certainly doesn't move uh, at the pace of industry, as I mean, as we've seen with the coronavirus stuff, I think people are the general public is waking up to the fact that the federal government is highly, highly reactive, not proactive. And when they do react, mm-hmm. it takes it takes time and money to get them to do anything. When they want it, when the government wants to devote resources to something because it's just so politically uh, unpalatable for them not to, 
they will do it with, with incredible vengeance and very quickly. Uh, but to get to that point, it takes a long time uh, and a lot of patience. And so what we're finding now is that despite the fact that 92% of veterans in the U.S. want the government to research cannabis, the fact that almost two-thirds of people think medical, there should be a pathway to legalization for medical cannabis, despite those overwhelming numbers, the bureaucrats in the government uh, just move uh, at glacially slow paces. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. So what's your ultimate vision for BRC? The ultimate vision for BRC is that we'll produce what's called API, which is active pharmaceutical ingredients for cannabis-derived drugs around the world. And I'll make a simple analogy. If you were to, and I don't know that this is the case with something like Benadryl, but I think it's just, it's, it's illustrative. If you crack open a pill, an Advil or a Benadryl or something like that, right? And the powder falls out of the capsule, uh, Benadryl or Advil or whomever likely didn't make that powder. They take all the raw ingredients, package it, and then market it and sell it. But the actual drug material that goes into most drugs, that's made by another company, and that's called API, Active Pharmaceutical Ingredients. And so our goal is uh, to produce cannabis API for drug developers around the world. We think that because of uh, the move away from opioids and the move towards the move toward in consumer trends, the move toward uh, naturally derived products and naturally effective products like cannabis, uh, that the big pharma and large drug developers are going to start playing in the cannabis space relatively soon, and we want to be their supplier. Interesting. Okay. And bringing this back to uh, the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, um, what do you think has been your driving force so far throughout your life? Is it having a clearly defined mission or purpose um, or is it something else? What would you say? Absolutely. It is. Yeah, I think it's mission and purpose. Um, it, it has been mission and purpose. But like I said at the beginning, it has not been just a very it, finding purpose and finding mission and whatever organization I'm a part of or phase of my life, it's SEAL teams or business school or now with BRC. Uh, and it certainly hasn't been uh, like as well charted out and, and as intentional, if you will, as it looks in retrospect. So it's not like I wake up and say like, okay, where am I going to find purpose? Um, but I think I know myself well enough. And like, I definitely mess this up sometimes, but I do know myself uh, well enough to know that I'm my best uh, when I am feeling very purpose-driven. And so I think that, that that's where I am right now. Mm -hmm. And lastly, what advice would you like to leave uh, the people listening who are maybe struggling, struggling to find their own work-related purpose or mission, maybe as like a good kind of first step to take? What I would encourage people to do and what I've found works for me is to think, think back uh, about work or personal life about instances in when you were most happy and most angry and try and back into why you thought you were most happy and most angry. And that will probably indicate uh, a lot about yourself. So like if you, you know, you, you might think, man, I was happiest in my professional life when I was making the most money. But in fact, if you like look back and think, man, when, when was I really happy? What about that made you happier? What points in your career did you feel 
that level of happiness and intrinsic happiness. And so I would say that would probably cue somebody into uh, what they need to be doing uh, with their lives in most instances. Like for me, I can say, man, I, I was certainly in the SEAL teams. I was most unhappy or felt most aggravated uh, at times when I didn't have a particular purpose or mission. Like if I was just sort of sitting around kind of bored and monotonous. And I was like, that's when I became stir crazy, like, you know, just stir crazy. And so that to me would deduce like, all right, I need to be actively focused on a mission or on a purpose. I'm not happy just sort of sitting idly by and collecting a a paycheck. And so going through that thought exercise, I think is useful. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that completely too. Um, And I think that's a good place to, to end also, Uh, George, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, where can people go if they want to learn more about BRC, like website and social media and so on? Yeah, um, they could follow me on Twitter, and I'm GB Hodgin, G B H O D G I N, or you can visit our website at www.biopharmaresearchco.com. Biopharmaresearchco.com. Awesome. Um, and you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Uh, thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.